remember the portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing for sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, in the garden of Eden, to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God took the man, excuse me, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place. The Lord God fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken of man. And so the Lord, <clears throat> for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. You would open in your Bibles, if you hadn't already, to that first, or actually the second chapter of Genesis. We've been studying the book of Genesis now for two weeks, and in the last couple of weeks, what we've found about creation is whatever else you might think about how it was done, the timeline it was done in, uh, there are three things that we can say for certain are revealed in God's Word about 
us and our creation. First of all, creation was intentional. It was not random. It was not left to chance. It was intentionally committed. And it was committed by God. And second of all, it was intelligent. The design in it is extraordinary. From the, the, the smallest subatomic particle to the largest constellation in the cosmos, the whole cosmos itself, God is the designer of all of it. And the complexity of it is mind-numbing. It is intentional, it is intelligent, and it is intimate. God himself has been intimate with his creation. He breathed into us his own light and life. He got that close. He doesn't hold us at arm length. But he has invested his light and his light, his life and his light in us. And we also know that God has said over and over again, it is good and it is very good. Last week's reading of Genesis 1 gave a summary account. Actually, the last two weeks we've kind of focused on that. And it gave a summary account of God's creative process. Chapter 2 focuses on the creation and the vocation of humankind. It provides more detailed information that chapter 1 skimmed over, including the fact that day 3 of creation that we covered back in chapter 1, which was the creation of the grasses and the fruit trees and of all the vegetation on the earth, the fact that day three of vacation, <laughs> vacation. <laughs> okay. Good old Freud, where is he when you need him? So day three of creation was the start of a process that wasn't yet completed before man, before God created man on day six. We read in chapter two, verses five and six. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not set rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So the missing element was both rain and the cultivating intelligence of humanity. And so it seems that, that creation was kind of a, a, a untreed prairie land, that morning dews and mists condensed and provided moisture for what plant growth there was. It appears that God, having said that there, uh, the reason that there were no trees or shrubs yet was because man hadn't been created yet, that God chose to finish creation's work in partnership with his creatures, with us. A special garden, a royal park, was planted by God as a home base. And from here, it seems, humankind was meant to slowly fan out and superintend the land's continued perfection in the goodness that God had started. Let me read chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. To cultivate it and to keep it. 
two Hebrew words, abad and shamar. The Hebrew word abad, which means work in general, is translated here to work the land or to cultivate. But the word is also used to mean worship. It's used to describe the labor of priests and Levites or worship leaders whose work it was to lead temple worship services. It's also used to describe the actions of those who came to worship. They came to Abad. Similarly, similarly, the word shamar is translated to keep or to tend, in this case the garden. But it is also used when God warns Israel to keep or to tend their hearts carefully and earnestly keep God's covenant requirements. Both words have what we would now call a secular meaning and a religious or spiritual meaning, but originally there was no separation between the two. Adam's work was priestly work. It was an act of worship which provided for a variety of creatures, creatures that he had just gotten done naming and, and coming to understand. He carefully he had to carefully tend and keep his own heart and mind to stay true to God's heart and mind for the sake of completing creation. Having commanded the man to join him in cultivating the earth as a holy garden, God observes it is not good for the man to be alone. So we're finding out all kinds of things about ourselves. If we find out why we were created, what God had in mind, what the first people did, we are finding important information out about who we are. One of the things that God says here is that it's not good for man to be alone. Humankind was meant to partner with God to complete the process of creation. But we cannot accomplish that goal unless we are in fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with creation, and in partnership, a partnership that still was lacking at this point. Loneliness is not just painful or unproductive. It is, in God's judgment, not good. Now, after a chapter and a half of talking about how everything was good and very good, this one thing stands out like a sore thumb as being not good, which is to say that man being alone is not just not good, it's downright wrong. God says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Hebrew word translated helper is azer. Azer. It appears often in the Old Testament, but it never implies that the one helping is subordinate to the one who is being helped. As a matter of fact, the word is very often used as a, a name and a descriptor for God himself. Moses named one of his sons, Eliezer, which means God is my helper. Ezer is used ten times in the Psalms to describe God, often in the phrase, our help and our shield. 
If it is used as a reference to God, then there can be no hint of subordination in the nature of the word. In each case that help is rendered in the psalm, whether it is God's help or the help of a friend, help is offered as a partner and a co-equal. Together, the image bearers were to rule creation, tending and tilling it so that it flourished in every respect and fulfilled the loving intentions of the Father Creator. The woman was created out of Adam, who is the image bearer. So Eve now, as it says in chapter 1, that the image of God is in both the man and the woman, Eve is also now shares in the breath of God that sustains Adam. Adam exchanges part of his body for Eve's. It's an act of fellowship and partnership. It's particularly important in that every creature that Adam has seen up to this point, in all of creation, he has found no one who is suitable, who is like enough him to partner with him. Adam exchanges part of his life for Eve's when God takes that rib. Love is always like this, an exchange that creates life or creates a fullness of life. Adam recognized immediately that this new creature is utterly different from any other he has seen. And the biggest difference is that she is like him. He understands that they are two parts of one flesh, and he says as much, and that they are both connected by the breath and the love of their creator. Adam names the helper woman. But it's not an act of dominion as when he named the beasts. This is recognition that she is not just another beast. Rather, she is a partner helper like himself, taken from his own flesh, and her name celebrates the end of the man's isolation. The union of man and woman was to make the image of God that much stronger in humankind and in creation, and to empower the image bearers to do the work that God had given them as his royal co-workers, his vice-regents. Woman was not created to do man's work for man. Rather, she was created to do God's work with man. Marital challenges are much less divisive. They're inevitable. They will come. But they are much less divisive when both participants are agreed on common goals and a common vision. A biblical marriage is one that searches to know God's goals and God's vision for them and their marriage and the new being that is created when two become one flesh. A biblical marriage is one that searches to know God's vision and joins God in working that vision and those goals out. When a family becomes obsessed with building itself and forgets that God is the first and most important part 
of their commitment and their life together and their life separately. They begin to focus on just the needs of their family. And inevitably that deteriorates over time to focusing on their own individual needs as they run out of resources for themselves and as their family proves to be more, better at taking energy than giving it back. Marital challenges get worse when the, the, the image bearers lose the direction that God would have for their marriage. Christian husbands and wives are often estranged from each other because their work and their life's goals are estranged from God's work and his goals. Adam and Eve, as we'll find out, their love didn't sour because they failed to communicate or because they failed to find enough experiences to share in common or even because one betrayed the other. The love of Adam and Eve was fractured when together they decided to break faith with their creator, the God who is love, whose very person becomes the definition of love. A marriage that ignores and betrays God frequently becomes a fellowship of shame, of blame, and suspicion, which we will find out in the next chapter. So we find out that an important part of who we are is humanity expressed in gender. A relationship, whether we find out that being alone is bad, it is wrong, and that even if a marriage is not in our present or our future, the fact is that we need to find a way to not be in isolation, to find family, to find community, to, so that we are not alone. So we learn that man is, is, is given a, a part in the, the, the perfection of God's creation and that we are to do that in community. But something else appears, something else emerges that we find out about God and about ourselves that is part of making a person. And that is the origins of hunger and longing. Adam grew in loneliness as he studied and named every creature. Each one paired with a suitable companion. It must have taken months, maybe years, maybe longer for Adam to accomplish this task. He must have wondered why he was the only one to have no mate. He didn't do this with, with his mate. He did this alone with God. And it happened over a long period of time. I imagine it came up in a conversation with God on more than one occasion. God pronounced that Adam's loneliness was not good. So why did God create Adam alone in the first place? Why did he wait if it is not good? Why did God delay even a day or an hour to rectify what he said wasn't good? And while we're at it, why put a fruit-bearing tree in the garden from which Adam could not eat? Why define a hunger that the man 
was not allowed to satisfy. The man and the woman must have walked by that tree for years, wondering if some secret good lay hidden in its fruit. When Jesus hungered in the wilderness for 40 days, or when he hungered in Gethsemane for something even more powerful and sustaining because he was in such anguish, in neither case did God rush in to provide relief, even for his own son. I think the lesson here is that God can be trusted and expected to do as much good in us and forming us into the people that he has in his mind for us to become, that he can be trusted to do as much good in us with hunger as he does with blessing, if we will remain obedient and letting the hunger work in us. Adam had no helpmate, but he did have God. He stayed faithful to God through the lonely times, and God remained faithful to him, fellowshipping with him and including him in the family business. Adam would have certainly grown closer to God. And more important than all of this, God was teaching Adam that being patient and faithful was Adam's first priority. There wasn't any great work that Adam was slated to do or had done or could do that was more important than for Adam to remain pliable in God's hands, to remain obedient, to honor the boundary that God had given him. Doing that, being obedient, would yield blessing beyond anything that Adam could hope for, not because Adam earned it, but because it is in God's nature to do unimaginably good things for his children who remain faithful to him. But first, God must teach us not to make the mistake of replacing our creator with any part of his creation. Our hunger must never be allowed to define us and to direct us in disobedience to God. Our hunger must never become our God, even if that hunger is God at work in us. This is just another indicator that our true self is not found within ourselves but in God's heart and mind, which are both revealed in his word, especially in his word, Jesus Christ. So, if our truest self is not hidden somewhere within us, then discovering, or more accurately, becoming our truest self is a journey outward or forward, but not inward. We must know our hearts, we must know our minds, we must know our inward space. But there's never a point when knowing about who we are inside and all of those nooks and crannies will complete us or perfect us. It is God who created us and it is he who continues to fashion and to build us in his image. His image guides our direction and our growth. 
His image in us, I've been thinking about this this week especially, His image in us is more about what we could be than what we are now. He created us to work with Him in His passion for creating life that begets life. Life that is unique, life that reveals beauty and poetry as well as utility and practicality. He empowered us to work with him in community. For isolation is not good. We lose ourselves, ironically. We lose ourselves if we become isolated. And what's more, our community is not founded on uniformity, but on profound diversity, starting with our gender. A profound diversity that is brought together in love. How can love express itself when the person you want to love is exactly like you? They have everything that you could give them. They are everything that you might be able to add to their life. They already have because they're just like you. The beauty of diversity means that love is possible, means that love can create an exchange that, that lets each person bless another. Gender itself means that every person has something to offer to the mix that half of the rest of the population doesn't have. Diversity allows for love, and it works better at creating love than uniformity. Finally, we work with God as he uses both extravagant blessing and profound hunger to shape our character and our soul. And all of this happened before sin. Before sin came in, God was still using moral choice to create character, to build the person that he had in mind. He uses extravagant blessing to surround his image bearers with resources and opportunities to explore and to expand the goodness of creation. But he also used profound hunger and want, denying Adam companionship while he explored and named creation, and denying both Adam and Eve the fruit of one tree that became the one boundary that they could not expand, the one opportunity that they must deny themselves. God's intention was not to torture or to tempt any more than the YMCA having a workout gym over there is, is meant to torture or to tempt you in some way. God was creating a spiritual gymnasium in which a moral choice became the workout. Moral choice became the treadmill, the, the, uh, the, the uh, weight machine. It flexed spiritual muscles that might not otherwise have an opportunity to flex themselves. God's intention was that they have opportunity to love or betray him and that it would express itself in a concrete way. This was and is an important person builder. With hunger and with boundaries, God does as much work in us as he does with resources and opportunities. With hunger and with boundaries, God creates 
a spiritual workout that builds spiritual muscle and stamina to build up vitality and strength of character to make us, to, to give us integrity, to build it in us. Blessing and hunger, freedom and boundaries, unity without uniformity. God employed all of these from the start. From the beginning, creation was not static. I used to have an aquarium. I loved, when, when we lived in the Twin Cities, we were just a few blocks away from a, an aquarium store called the World of Fish, and I'm telling you, it was, if, if, you're, if you like aquariums, it was like nirvana. You go in there and there was salt water and fresh water and there was thousands of gallons. <laughs> and who knows how many fish in there. And it was so cool to put the live plants in and to have this different kind of mini ecosystem and then just, just sit there and watch it. But it was a very static creation. The only thing that could happen basically was death. The plants, the fish, that would be the one change that would occur. Creation's not like that. We're finding out that creation has all kinds of dynamic complexity that keeps life begetting life and begetting more abundant life that expands the goodness that God created in it. Creation was not static. Its perfection was dynamic. It was growing. It was flourishing. The process, however, the process that changed creation was not the one that we were taught in junior high and high school or middle school and, and high school biology classes like when I was a kid. The process was not governed by chance mutations in competition with each other and governed by death. God is not a cosmic Charles Darwin. Creation's dynamic nature was founded in the person of our Creator. And in Him, all things hold together. What a powerful thought. All things hold together in Him. He is, he is light. He is life. He is infinite complexity. He is distinct diversity all woven together by love into harmony, integrity, and community. And that is our future. The future that the image of God guarantees those who will accept the gift of salvation that he has given. Let me read and close with a reading of Jesus' high priestly prayer for us. In John 17, the last few verses from verse 22 to 26, Jesus is praying to the Father for us. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. 
and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this unity that is not uniformity, that is infinitely interesting. The diversity that gives us all a place to play, a part to do, and in any relationship, something that we can offer of ourselves to the other that they don't have in themselves. We praise you, Lord God, that, that the image that is in us of you is not a static thing. It is a promise, a promise of a future that we still don't fully see and can't imagine. A future in unity with you. Lord God, help us to be patient, help us to live, help us to use faithfully the blessings you have given us and help us to endure obediently the hunger that you have given us. For I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.